Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back, guys. And thank you for joining us in what is our finale or mid-season break before Christmas <laughs> and New Year. I'm so excited, I Mark. Think, I'm excited too. I couldn't think how to describe it. And you've done equally shit a job as I'd envisaged <laughs> in my head of me doing. So, yeah, it is um, the last episode before our mid-season break is probably the best way to describe it. Oh, yeah, it. that's actually the right way to say it, isn't it? And we'll be back, I want to say the 3rd of January. Yes, for you're correct. the second half of season 10. Yeah. Um, so if we forget, we'll say Happy Christmas and Happy New Year now, in yeah. case we don't say it at the end of the we episode. We may forget. We may forget. Um, shall we thank our most recent Patreon supporters, Bethany? Oh, yes, Mac. Let's do it. <laughs> I remember you used to do that. Do you want to do the <laughs> You honors? always used to call me Beth at work, didn't you? Because you know it really riled me up. I would love to actually, because I don't think I've said the patrons for a little while. <laughs> okay. Go Why on. are you laughing? Is there a, is there a name <laughs> that I'm definitely going to get wrong? No, I'm laughing because <laughs> of Mac. <laughs> and I think that was like your me shortening your name, <laughs> which makes a lot more sense. Beth and to Beth, you would then obviously get your own back by shortening my, <laughs> I took out the my name to Mac. And it just doesn't really work. <laughs> I took out the R. Um, I shortened I, your name. <laughs> And it just, it took me right back to when we worked together and you used to do it and it just carried no weight then. So it doesn't And it still anything. doesn't, and doesn't bother me. it really annoys me. me when people call me Beth. Do you know, do you yeah. remember as well where I'd have to try and describe my name because nobody over the phone could understand oh me. So I'd be like, God. oh, it's like Bethany, but without a Y. Without a Y. And I remember this very well. And our co-worker well. made up, it's like Beth and Jartenstein without the Jartenstein. <laughs> 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 and then I used to just call you Beth Beth and Jartenstein. Yeah, um, there we go. Anyway, yeah. this doesn't mean anything to anybody else apart from us. No. So. All these private jokes everybody yeah. loves. Welcome to the longest intro ever, everybody. So who are we going to thank them? Oh, we're going to thank all of our patron supporters, but especially Catherine Chamberlain, Michelle Ash, Kelly Dawson, Natasha Aslop, Beth Turner and Witters. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, all of you, and thank you to our existing Patreon supporters as well. We are doing a very special Q&A, uh, which will be out in a couple of days' time for our Patreon supporters. So uh, there's never been a better time to sign up for uh, Patreon to see what we have to say on this Q&A. Have I sold that well enough? Oh my God, that was that was worse than me not knowing what that a mid-season break is. I don't know what's wrong with us today. No, I know. We've just recorded a promo for something else and fucked it up about a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are able to support us on Patreon and if you would like to, it makes a massive difference to us. We are so, so grateful to each and every one of you who supports us. It only takes a couple of minutes to sign up and yeah, it kind of leaves us with a very special glow and feeling. All you need to do is head to patreon.com slash podcast, and it would honestly make our day and our Christmas. This week, for the first time on Seeing Red, we're heading to Norway as we revisit an exceptionally distressing case from 2011. There is little doubt that you'll remember this case. It was a massacre of such epic proportions that, at the time, it was recognised by Norway as the greatest loss of life in a single day since World War II. This horrendous act claimed the lives of 77 individuals and sent waves of shock and sadness around the world. And it also prompted nationwide grief and reflection on issues such as domestic terrorism, extremism and societal resilience. I'm really glad that we're covering this case. Um, It's one of those cases for me that really stands out when I think of becoming really, really fascinated by true crime and the psychology behind why people did things and how absolutely devastating things can be because it was it was one of those moments of sitting there and just watching the news unfold and I just couldn't stop having the news, you know, whether the news is on like just on repeat on those news channels and you just see the ticker bar going along the bottom and I just couldn't stop listening and watching and, and wanting to know more even though it was absolutely devastating. I think it was one of those crimes that unfolded in real time, didn't it, for us? We were able to Absolutely, follow it yeah. and see exactly what was happening. I which... feel like maybe it was a weekend as well so that I wasn't at work during the day, I think, if I remember rightly. So just kind of constantly looking at the TV and looking at what was going on. 
Yeah, you might have had the day off. It was a Friday that it unfolded, so uh, close to the weekend. Oh, certainly. Maybe I was just yeah. skiving. <laughs> you could have been skiving. I wasn't skiving. Of course I wasn't. And it's um, when you talk about what, I, I can't remember how you phrased it, but what kind of the psyche of these people that commit such heinous crimes, these kind of crimes that go down in history. Um, we'll come on to that towards the end of the episode because it's really interesting, the background of the perpetrator. I knew nothing about, and I think there'll be lots of people out there that don't really know the backstory, and it does make for very interesting listening. Do you know what I'm also excited about with this episode, Mark? Your Norwegian pronunciation. <laughs> mm, yeah, some of it is phonetically spelt. So. Good idea. That's what I did. Um, yeah. Quite a few of my cases where I've had someone help me who's from the country that I'm covering the case from and they help me with the language i quite often put phonetically just to try and remind myself how to pronounce it so i am um, i'm glad that you have i just whack it into google and and add pronunciation afterwards oh, and then okay that's it, a good idea it speaks it to me yeah you don't have to talk to real people then do you no exactly and it's so much better <laughs> so oslo is the capital and largest city of norway it's situated in the south of the country and it's renowned for its scenic waterfront, for its green open spaces and also for its modern architecture. Despite being a major densely populated capital city, Oslo has uniquely shied away from the concrete jungle aesthetic of other major European capitals and instead seamlessly blends urban sophistication with natural beauty. And it really is Norway in general is considered to be an amazing country in which to live. I've never visited and I've always wanted to and I've heard such amazing things about it. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, stunning scenery. As the economic and cultural hub of Norway, Oslo boasts a rich cultural scene, including world-class museums like the Viking Ship Museum, along with a vibrant culinary landscape and diverse neighbourhoods. The city is known for its commitment to sustainability with extensive parks, bike-friendly infrastructure and a focus on renewable energy. In addition to this, Oslo has historically enjoyed relatively low crime rates compared to many other European cities. In fact, Norway as a whole has a reputation for being one of, if not the safest countries in the world. And it boasts impressively low numbers of violent crimes and by far the lowest murder rate in Europe. Factors contributing to this include a well-functioning social welfare system, strong community ties, high-quality education for all citizens, and effective law enforcement. However, in the summer of 2011, the illusion of safety in Oslo would be forever shattered. I always find it so fascinating when a country has really low crime rates. When we were talking about Japan, for example, in a previous case, mm. it's just... it. I don't know, like when you live somewhere that the crime rates are high, obviously it's still absolutely heartbreaking every single time something happens. But I imagine people are a little more prepared almost uh, that that things may happen, that they may know someone else who suffered almost the same thing recently or they're more aware of it. But when it's a country with really low crime rates, it seems to shock even harder and feel like the impact seems to be felt a lot harder and more. Yeah, I think even um, even sometimes on a subconscious level in, in countries where crime rates are relatively normal or, or indeed high, even if it's not a conscious thought, subconsciously you're, you're kind of prepared for something bad happening not too far from home or maybe to somebody you know or somebody, you know, a friend of a friend, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think in a country like Norway... Uh, any any kind of serious violent crime is going to be shocking, but particularly one in which seventy seven people lose their lives. I mean, yeah, this this happening anywhere. Yeah, it's just and all the eyewitness accounts, everything, like you said earlier, happening in real time and getting the information quite, you know, quite quickly and anywhere, it would just be absolutely horrific. Yeah, and it it was. Friday, July 22nd, was a beautifully warm and sunny day in the city of Oslo. The day began as any other. The streets were filled with civilians just going about their business, shopping, working and preparing for the weekend ahead. They felt safe, everything was normal and nothing seemed out of the ordinary. 
At 18 minutes past three that afternoon, a white panel van came to a stop and parked up outside the Norwegian Central Government Headquarters building. And that is a bit like Westminster, is our equivalent of this. So Whitehall, for example, where all the government buildings are in close proximity. The driver shut down the engine and then immediately exited the vehicle. He closed and locked the door behind him and then walked at a hurried pace down the main street. CCTV caught the man as he walked with purpose down the quiet and mostly empty street. He was dressed as a policeman, wearing a full set of tactical riot gear. That sounds like a really chilling kind of image, doesn't it? Just even if you just saw someone, you'd you'd think like, wow, what are they going to have to go deal with or what have they just dealt with? You'd... You'd kind of think that they're at work, wouldn't you? It just feels horrible. Yeah, it's sinister. It would have been yeah, yeah. quite shocking to see that. And just this individual on their own, it's not mm-hmm. really how these things transpire. Usually no. there's a group of riot officers. So it would have looked weird, I think. But yeah. as I said, the street was mostly empty. So neither the man nor the white van roused any suspicions at first. The policeman disappeared around the corner and for a few moments everything fell silent. Then, at 26 minutes past three, out of nowhere, the ambient hum of city life was shattered by a deafeningly loud blast. More than a tonne of fertiliser-based explosives that had been stored in the back of that van had been intentionally detonated. The force of the blast was truly ferocious. The explosion destroyed the front facade of the main government building, causing it to partially collapse. All of the windows of every structure within a 100-foot radius were shattered, and the people inside were literally knocked off their feet by a shower of debris and broken glass. The blast caused a tremor that was so intense that civilians on the surrounding streets, who didn't realise that a bomb had just gone off, were convinced that they had just experienced an earthquake and the noise was so loud that it was reportedly heard from up to three miles away. Wow, that is crazy. This is a massive explosion. In the immediate aftermath of the explosion, an enormous cloud of dust and smoke descended onto Oslo, and waves of panic, fear and confusion swept across the city streets. It became almost immediately clear that this was no accident. The illusion of safety in Norway had been forever shattered. They were under attack. The police swooped in immediately and began quickly evacuating everyone from the scene. There were real concerns that some of the buildings that had been caught in the blast might collapse entirely. The police's biggest fear, though, was that whoever was behind this cowardly attack may not be finished. More attacks, they warned, may be imminent. As police officers and rescue workers began to sift through the carnage, they discovered eight dead bodies and they evacuated more than 80 wounded civilians to nearby hospitals. Already this attack was shaping up to be easily the worst in Norway's history. However, the true horror of that day was only just beginning. The man responsible for the attack was following a carefully curated plan. As it turned out, the bomb in Oslo was not the main event, but rather a distraction. Its purpose was to divert attention to the city and to keep the police busy so that he could move on with the next phase of his plan with minimal interference. Indeed, this would later prove to be a smart move on the bomber's part. The Oslo police found themselves so overwhelmed that they focused all of their efforts, resources and personnel onto the attack site – As they did this, the bomber was making good on his escape, driving a car to the north of the city to continue with his terror plot. And the police's fears would soon prove to be accurate, because the worst was yet to come. And that's the... I mean, the thing is, is this is still eight people dead, more than 80 80 wounded civilians. And just that on its own is a devastating attack to happen that's that's so chilling isn't it even just that on its own would be awful and that's outside the government headquarters yeah. so this is you know straight away they're thinking this is a politically motivated attack of course and that adds another layer of concern doesn't it and also you know is the prime minister or other political figures are they at risk now is that yeah. what this is about so What's yeah the next it would have been terrifying be? yeah yeah is this another 911 for example 
Tye Riviorden is the fifth largest lake in Norway, spanning approximately 137 square kilometres, and it's situated around 25 miles north of Oslo. Nestled amidst rolling hills and scenic landscapes, the lake is renowned for its breathtaking natural beauty. Surrounded by lush forests and picturesque countryside, Tyrivjorden offers a tranquil escape and serves as a popular destination for outdoor enthusiasts. Its shores are dotted with charming villages and recreational areas, providing opportunities for activities such as hiking, fishing and boating. The lake's clear waters, famed by verdant surroundings, create a peaceful and idyllic setting, making Triviorden a favoured spot for both locals and tourists seeking a serene retreat in the Norwegian countryside. In the centre of the lake there is a beautiful little island named Utoya, a picturesque and serene retreat known for its natural beauty and recreational facilities. Covering an area of about a tenth of a square kilometre, the island is heavily wooded and features walking trails, open spaces and panoramic views of the surrounding lake and hills. Historically, Utoya has been a popular destination for youth camps and cultural events, offering a tranquil setting for outdoor activities and fostering a sense of community amongst its visitors. It just sounds absolutely beautiful and anybody who's seen any of kind of the images of this place it it really is just as lush as you're kind of mentioning it and describing it it's in it's such an incredible location yeah it's i mean it's obviously not a tropical island because it's it's in norway but it's yeah it is almost like it's like a private island just a yeah tranquil lush paradise yeah paradise island yeah that's mm-hmm. exactly what it is and it's small it is only a tenth of a square kilometer so you can walk around this island pretty quickly you can see from one side to the other and of the lake yeah. as well it's yeah really contained as well i feel like that's also how it it feels to me anyway it's very contained within this one small area but there's so much like you said so much to do within that area but that containment will prove to be a huge issue for the people on on the island that day. So the island's tranquil atmosphere and lush landscapes make it an appealing location for those seeking a peaceful escape or for those wishing to engage in various recreational pursuits. Utoya features a small dock at the south end of the island that allows a single passenger boat to ferry visitors to and from the island. The north of the island consists of mainly forest land, save for a few small lodges and camping areas dotted around the place. On that fateful day in July 2011, the island was being used to accommodate a large group of teenagers from the Norwegian Labour Party's AUF division, better known as the Workers' Youth League. Established in 1927, the AUF serves as a political organisation for young people who align with the values and principles of Norway's left-leaning Labour Party. The primary purpose of the AUF is to engage and involve young individuals in political activities, discussions and social issues. The organisation focuses on political education, fostering a sense of community and providing a platform for young people to voice their opinions on matters related to social justice, equality and labour rights. AUF members actively participate in campaigns, demonstrations and community projects, working to promote the Labour Party's agenda and values amongst the youth. One notable event organised by the AUF was their annual summer camp in Utoya Island. The camp served as a gathering for young members, providing a space for political discussions, workshops and other cultural activities. The AUF's 2011 event was in full swing when the teenagers began receiving news on their phones that there had been a large-scale terrorist attack in the city. A sense of dread and anxiety emerged and the incident soon became the talk of the camp, with many members becoming agitated as they tried to check in on their friends and loved ones. Because don't forget, this lake on which the island is situated is only about 25 miles from Oslo. So lots of the people on that island would have been from Oslo, they would have family in Oslo. They're kind of, you know, not stranded, but they're on this remote location, they're getting word of a terrorist attack in Oslo. Yeah, it's not like you're at school and your school let you out early and you can just go home. No. You're not You're not going to go from there back to Oslo. But you, yeah, you may have had somebody in your family who works in that district or you might be worried about your friends or anybody. Yeah, this was, you know, a real worry and they were mm-hmm. desperately trying to find out what happened. 
At around 5pm, approximately an hour and a half after that Oslo explosion, a man dressed in a police uniform and carrying a large duffel bag boarded the passenger ferry and soon thereafter arrived at the small dock on Utoya Island. He was greeted by Monica Bosai, one of the organisers of the Labour Party's AUF youth camp. The man produced a police ID card and presented himself as Martin Nilsson from the Oslo Police Department and explained that he was there to carry out a routine check and to provide additional security to the island in light of what had just taken place in Oslo. Ms Bosai immediately felt uneasy. The man she was talking to did not look or behave like a typical police officer. He was tall, white, blonde-haired, with a broad build and he spoke with a regional Norwegian accent but his eyes and general demeanour just bothered her. Plus, the ID that she'd been shown just didn't look right to her. She couldn't quite put a finger on it, but something about the man just seemed off. Just then, she was joined by Trond Bernstein, the security officer on the island, who also requested to see the officer's ID. However, instead of handing over his ID as requested, the officer produced a handgun from his holster and callously shot both Bossai and Bernstein dead. I mean, this is just horrible, isn't it? Because you're just doing your job. You're kind of like checking the ID, just just not expecting that instead of pulling out the ID again, I just, oh, it's just a stuff of like nightmares or of like a horror film. I was, I was going to say, it's like something out of a film. I'm sure I've seen that in films where, yeah, somebody has to see ID and a gun is produced and they're shot dead. Yeah. So for just... that to happen mm-hmm. is truly shocking. Really shocking. Nobody else on the island saw the execution that had just occurred, although some survivors would later recall hearing those shots. And so the gunman was able to holster his weapon and proceed to the main camping area where the 600 or so teenagers were staying. When he arrived there, he called out for everyone's attention and asked everyone to gather around him as he had an important update from Oslo. Most of the unsuspecting teenagers obliged, eager to get an update on the unfolding situation in the capital. However, their confusion soon turned to horror when the officer's demeanour suddenly became sinister. With an expression of pure, burning hatred, he said to them, You will die today, Marxists, liberals, members of the elite, before pulling a semi-automatic weapon from his duffel bag and firing at them indiscriminately. What followed was an unimaginable bloodbath. Numerous people were killed within the first few seconds of the massacre. When the gunman fired the first few shots, everyone around him instinctively turned to flee. So many were shot in the back as they ran for their lives for the woods where they thought they might be able to hide. The ones who managed to evade the shooter and reach the woods weren't much better off. Their situation was the stuff of nightmares. They were trapped on a very small island with no way of escaping back to the mainland. All of the police were 40 miles away dealing with another major incident and an armed psychopath was roaming the island, hunting them down and slaughtering them one by one. Over the next hour and a half, the gunman prowled the island, killing and wounding numerous people. He mercilessly shot anyone he found and cruelly finished them off as they lay wounded on the ground. He first shot people on the island and later started shooting panic-stricken teenagers who were trying to escape the island by swimming across a lake. And I think that's one of the um, one of the things that always kind of hits me with this is even as they're fleeing, you know, being shot in the back and then swimming away. And when you see the pictures, you can kind of see all the way across the water. So he could just see them as they're trying to swim away and they're just being picked off as well. It's just absolute. There's just no no real words, are there? It's just so sickening to imagine the terror that they felt. And it's kind of logical, isn't it, to think that they... You know, they jump into the water, they're attempting to swim away. That's the only way they can get away from the island quickly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, where, as soon as they're in the water, it's obvious where they are. And it's easy to, you're quite right, to pick them off one by one. And that's what happened to a lot of the people that tried to escape by swimming off that island. Survivors of this sickening attack later described the scene of terror. Survivor Dana Barzingi, then 21, described how several of the wounded victims attempted to survive by playing dead. 
However, this was ineffective as the gunman made a point of finishing off everyone he shot by shooting them once again at point-blank range in the head as they lay dying on the ground. And can you imagine that sort of thinking, this is my only option, I can't run, I will play dead. Stay still. Stay still and he's going to think that I've been shot amongst these dozens of people that have been shot and I'm going to get away with it. And then he is standing over you and above you or near to you and you hear him or see him shooting people that are already apparently dead at point blank range. You're going to be thinking this isn't going to work. And it didn't, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's it's so calculated and, and military. This yeah. isn't just, you know, just shooting at random and, and firing indiscriminately. It's also making sure that everybody shot has been killed as well. It's, I don't know, it's just a whole nother level, isn't it? And it kind of reminded me of the Mandalay Bay massacre episode mm-hmm. that we did at the beginning of 2022. Yeah. Um, Stephen Paddock was a shooter in that episode, in that case. And there is a difference because he he was out to cause utter carnage and it wasn't, it was planned and it was calculated and he had a whole arson, arsenal of weaponry in his hotel suite. But he was just kind of firing, you know, that really was indiscriminate, long range. This is very calculated in terms of, you know, picking individuals off one by one and ensuring that they are dead, not just firing, you know, into a crowd and hoping for the best. Yeah, because in the Vegas episode, in the case that you spoke about, there's it's the panic and it's everybody running and fleeing and not knowing yeah. where the shots have come from. That was almost the the kind of buzz that the killer got, that the shooter got, was was causing that absolute panic. Whereas in mm. this, it is pure and simple: get you know, kill them and make sure that they're dead. Yeah, kill as many people as I possibly mm-hmm. can. Some terrified witnesses escape certain death by hiding in undergrowth and in lavatories, communicating by text message to avoid revealing their positions. And it was later found that the shooter used hollow point bullets, which essentially explode upon impact and cause catastrophic tissue damage. And they had been very deliberately chosen to cause maximum damage. Exactly. As we just said, this is kill, not not just maim not carnage this is kill yeah Mm -hmm. throughout the massacre the shooter repeatedly shouted at his victims to reveal themselves so that he could shoot them and he taunted them yelling like a madman telling them that there was no escape and that death was inevitable for them the first shot was fired on utoya at 5 22 p.m and the first distress call was made to emergency services just two minutes after that one minute after that the police in oslo were informed They then immediately scrambled to try and reach Utoya as quickly as possible, but there were numerous complications that prevented them from reaching the island as quickly as they had hoped. For one, all the available helicopters were being used in Oslo in the wake of that bomb blast, and the only passenger ferry on the lake was docked on Utoya Island. That's the one that the shooter has gotten there, so it is remaining there. Whilst the police desperately tried to find a way over to the island, local residents sprung into action. They managed to launch a small flotilla of motorboats and fishing dinghies, and with no regard for their own safety, they disobeyed the police's orders to evacuate the area and sailed out to rescue the survivors, who were pulled out shivering and bleeding from the water and picked up from hiding places in the bushes and behind rocks around the island shoreline. What I mean, that is just absolutely incredibly heroic behaviour. Absolutely amazing. Ma- yeah, wow. And, you know, I, I suppose maybe your instincts just kick in and you hear this is happening. You don't know the full details, but you know it's a, a bad situation that's going down, but you've just got to get there. You know you can get there and you can do some good, hopefully. Yeah, you just, you like to hope, don't you, that you would be as brave and as incredible. Yeah. If ever faced in that situation. Not that I have a boat, but you know what I mean. Um, just yeah. to be able to do something. And again, to disobey the police, I think that's quite a big thing, especially in quite a a crime-free country. The police would be well-respected and trusted and, you know, you behave when the police told you what to do and these people have gone, no, this is more important. Yeah. 
A very lucky few of the inhabitants on the island that day did manage to survive by pretending to be dead, but others had avoided death by swimming around the island's rocky west side where they hid in the caves, which were only accessible from the water. So that was, you know, the only way that they'd managed to escape. That They got into the water and then quickly realised that they can't swim away from the island, but they can swim around it, and there were caves there where they could hide. It's estimated that the heroic actions of the civilian volunteers saved the lives of more than 30 people that day. As the police frantically continued to try and get to the island, the gunman used a burner phone to call the 112 emergency services number twice and he tried to negotiate a surrender. However, he hung up abruptly both times after discovering more victims and shooting them down. Police tried to call him back numerous times but failed. At 6.25pm, almost 90 minutes after the Utoya massacre had begun, a specialised armed police tactical unit finally arrived and stormed the island. They were met with gruesome scenes. The island was a bloodbath, littered with the bullet-ridden bodies of innocent teenagers. There was no sign of the gunman, but they could hear the distinct sounds of gunfire coming from the wooded area ahead. This was the sound of the attacker walking around the woods and cruelly finishing off the unfortunate souls who had been injured in this sick attack. I think the word cruel is just exactly the correct description there. Yeah, it's, it's just cruel. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because we've covered loads of different cases. All murders are cruel, but this is just a slightly different level, I think, because it's... There's no proper motive and we'll go on to talk about any, you know, motive, quote unquote. But I don't know, it's just so detached and it's so difficult to have any understanding of this and and why it happened. And I think large scale massacres or large scale events just hit differently. I really think they do. Yeah. Even though, like you said, any murder or attack or crime is is horrific and cruel in its own way when it's mass murder there's just something more about it Mm. when the police arrived at the main camping area they were met by deeply traumatized survivors begging the officers to throw away their weapons as they were afraid that the men in uniforms would open fire at them the tactical unit spread out and discreetly closed in on the gunman and it didn't take long for them to get him surrounded When they finally emerged from the forest and confronted him, he immediately dropped his weapons and surrendered without resistance. By a very narrow margin, and despite the clear danger he posed, the police decided not to shoot him on sight and instead moved in to arrest him. And I remember being really shocked that he did just drop his weapons, put his hands up, just surrendered. I remember at the time being so shocked. I just didn't... I was assuming it would end with the police saying that they'd either had to shoot him or that he'd shot himself. I just did not expect this at the time, and it was really surprising. And that's normally how these things do end, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, lots of cases we've covered, the Hungerford Massacre, for example, it generally does end in that way. So, yeah, yeah, it was kind of like, well, what's going to happen now? You know, we're going to find out why this has happened, and we're going to see this individual, and... There's going to be a court case and yeah, it's, you know, it kind of goes on and on and on. It doesn't end as abruptly as some other massacres. Well, like we mentioned earlier as well, Mandalay Bay, like you just don't expect that. So yeah, really, really surprised by that. So the man was forced to the ground and placed in handcuffs before being taken to one of the camping lodges on Utoya to be questioned. After his arrest, as the police began the traumatic, gut-wrenching task of tallying up the body count, the gunman was held on the island and interrogated throughout the night. He turned out to be an extremely cooperative prisoner and held nothing back as he delivered his shocking justification for his despicable actions. He identified himself as Anders Bering Brevik, a white Norwegian national and far-right extremist and freely admitted to being solely responsible for the carnage in Oslo and of course for the massacre that had occurred on Utøya. Brevik explained that the purpose of the attack was to save Norway and Western Europe from a Muslim takeover and that the left-leaning Norwegian Labour Party had to pay the price for letting down Norway and the Norwegian people. Brevik referred to himself as the greatest monster since Quisling 
And this is a remark that is believed to be in reference to Vidkun Quisling, who was a Norwegian military officer turned traitor who secretly collaborated with Adolf Hitler and attempted a military coup on the government at the height of World War II. So an absolute Judas that turned on the government and embraced the ideology of Hitler. So he's kind of calling himself that person, but he's also saying that the Norwegian Labour Party letting down the people. It's just already very mixed how he's describing himself and other people. Yeah, and this ideology that he has and this sort of rhetoric of I am... I am saving Western Europe from a Muslim takeover. It is just an excuse. He's just picked, he's latched, he's latched onto something to justify this horrific act that he has wanted to commit, to carry out. And I think there are deeper reasons that we will come on to shortly as to the foundations for what he did. I don't think it had anything to do with that ideology. That was just a convenient excuse to pick. Really, there were there were reasons that go much deeper than that, which we I'm will really come on intrigued. To. I can't wait to know more about that because yeah, if you're if you have an issue with people who were Muslim, you would surely attack Muslim people. You wouldn't attack yeah. white Norwegian people. Yeah. And I don't know, like it just doesn't make any sense. So this is going to be very interesting to look at where this may actually stem from. Yeah. Brevik also explained that the former Norwegian Labour Party Prime Minister, Gro Harlem Brundtland, who Brevik said he hated, had been on the island earlier that day to give a speech to the camp. Brevik stated that he originally wanted to target her specifically, but because of delays related to the renovation of Oslo Central Railway Station, he arrived after she had already left. And he revealed that as soon as he realised that Gro Harlem Brundtland had left, he briefly did consider abandoning this whole plan on Utoya, but ultimately decided to go ahead regardless. Brevik was charged with multiple murders and terrorism offences and remanded in custody. However, despite having the terrorist in custody, the burning question did remain, why? Why had a white nationalist who claimed to be a Norwegian patriot opted to wage war on his own country and his own white countrymen? In order to get to the bottom of the riddle, the police set out to find out as much as they could about Anders Bering Brevik and the life that he had led in the run-up to the atrocities of July the 22nd, 2011. So this is where it gets really interesting. To say that Anders Brevik lived a troubled life would be putting things somewhat lightly. Born in Oslo in 1979, he was the son of Jens David Brevik, a prominent diplomat for the Norwegian Embassy in London and later Paris, His mother, Elizabeth Bering, was a nurse. Anders Brevik began his life in London, where he lived until he was two years old, when his parents divorced. After the split, Elizabeth left London and took her son Anders back to Norway with her. From 1982 to 1994, Anders and his mother lived in a tiny apartment in Oslo. When Brevik was just four years old, kindergarten workers raised concerns about his seemingly stunted rate of mental development. After being rigorously assessed by child psychologists, it was noted that there were indeed several peculiarities with regard to young Anders' behaviour and intellect. One section of the report noted that Anders had a rather unusual smile, and it was theorised that it was not anchored in his emotions, but was rather a deliberate response to his environment. So, oh, wow. Um, that's not really instinctive, just yeah. a learnt behaviour that this, you know, when this happens, normal people, people smile do this they smile Mm. and this is what a smile looks like so it's a bit like anyone who forces a smile it's really fucking hard isn't it you it looks fake as fuck so um, they say because it doesn't reach your eyes don't they yeah you don't have that sort of sparkle i suppose furthermore it was observed that anders had little to no emotional engagement and that he didn't show joy when he was happy or cry when he was hurt He made no attempt whatsoever to play with the other children and would physically attack anyone who attempted to play with him. And he was also showing signs of OCD in childhood. He would become extremely anxious when his clothes got dirty or when his toys were not in order. And he was described as being extremely clean. He was obsessed with being clean. So not just, for example, obsessive hand washing, but you know, every part of him had to be rigorously cleaned and also his clothes, but, you know, yeah, everything. 
Further concerns were later raised about how Anders was being treated by his mother, who, it was alleged, was physically, emotionally and sexually abusing him. Elizabeth herself had suffered an abusive upbringing. She had fled her abusive home at the age of 17 and soon after that became a teenage mother. In her 30s, she became pregnant with Anders and married his father, Jens Brevik. During her pregnancy, she moved to London, where Jens worked. During pregnancy, it's understood that Elizabeth developed a deep hatred for her unborn son. She claimed to friends that she was carrying a nasty, evil little child who was kicking her on purpose. Oh my goodness, I mean, that's just it's really awful. fucked up, isn't it? Really messed up. Um, but also prophetic, because, I mean, is it nature or nurture? Was there something within her that could tell that evil was growing inside of her? Or was she just this horrific mother that sexually and physically and emotionally abused her son that he turned out to be so fucked up? Probably the latter, I would say. Yeah, probably. And it sounds really awful because what he goes on to do is just so horrific. But when I think of that child that has no social skills, that is being abused by his mother, whose mother has even said something like that when he wasn't even born yet, unable to play with other children, unable to do things that children should enjoy, like getting a bit messy or things being chaos, because kids love chaos normally. Um, It does make me feel really sad. Me too, yeah. Yeah, and I think it does, it goes a, a long way to explaining what, happened and I'll talk a bit more about his later life and what he was doing in the lead up to this massacre but yeah the the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle do start fitting together with this. Anders' mother made no secret of the fact that she had wanted to abort him but by the time she'd gone to the hospital she'd passed the three-month threshold for an abortion. I mean you know just she probably told him that and made no secret of that to him as well in his childhood, that she she never wanted him and would have happily aborted him. Her hatred for Anders only intensified after his birth in February 1979, and it's understood that his mother stopped breastfeeding her son early on because he was, as she put it, sucking the life out of her, which I think, you know, I, I don't necessarily blame her if she was having a problem with breastfeeding him, but I think she possibly meant it on a kind of... A different level, maybe that you know this this evil being that is literally sucking the life out of her. Yeah, it's it's just a horrible phrase, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I do still also feel a bit of sympathy for her. You know, she's come out of an abusive childhood of her own, so mm. she hasn't had that role model of what a good parent is and what a good mother does for a child. So that's that's very difficult as well but it it still is very hard to kind of get your head around as a as a caring nurturing person as a normal person who wants to you know feel like all these happy things for someone to just almost consistently focus on negative it just sounds just really really heartbreaking for for the baby and for this little boy again i i kind of feel really conflicted because i know what he's going to go on to do and it is that same argument that we've had previously of that there is some mitigation, there is some, uh, I don't know, it, it provides some kind of explanation for what he goes on to do. But we we encounter lots of people that have horrific childhoods that don't do that. So Yeah, it gives you some background, but it doesn't excuse anything. It doesn't, no, it doesn't excuse it, but I, I think it does provide a lot of context. Yeah. Mm. In Anders' early life, when he was most vulnerable and desperate and in need of care, affection and nurture, Elizabeth would simply ignore him and even leave him at home all alone for hours on end in order to go to work or spend time partying with her friends. In the report, Anders' mother was described as a woman with an extremely difficult upbringing, borderline personality disorder and an all-encompassing, if only partially visible, depression who projects her primitive aggression and sexual fantasies onto her son. The report further detailed how Elizabeth would relentlessly berate and slap a young Anders and frequently told him to his face that she hated him and wished that he was dead. The report concluded with a strong recommendation that young Anders be forcibly removed from the custody of his mother and placed into foster care. However, for reasons that may never be known, this wasn't carried out by Oslo's Child Welfare Services. 
and so the twisted and degenerative process of Anders Breivik's life continued largely unchecked. He developed into a weird, neurotic, emotionless, sociopathic child who had no friends and who was repeatedly reprimanded for torturing animals. And his mother's mental state deteriorated with time and therefore the abuse that was inflicted on Anders just got worse and before long he'd become completely isolated from his father who chose to keep distance. Abused at home and isolated by the world, the future indeed looked bleak for the youngster. Nobody who knew Anders as a child anticipated a happy ending for him. However, nobody could have anticipated just how horrific his future would one day become. When he reached early adulthood, Anders amounted to the textbook definition of a loser. He left school with negligible academic qualifications and no friends. He then drifted in and out of work as a loner with no social life or aspirations. What Anders lacked more than anything else in life was a sense of belonging, and he longed to find a community that would embrace and accept him for who he was. At one point, he attempted to join the Freemasons after being introduced to a lodge by a relative. However, he quickly got bored with the organisation's apparent lack of political ambition and he soon stopped attending meetings. On the search for a more aggressive, politically-minded ideology to latch onto, Anders soon discovered the Progress Party, a fiercely far-right Norwegian populist outfit whose main agenda was to turn public opinion against immigrants and to highlight the dangers of Islam. Brevik was instantly taken by the group's core values, and after officially becoming a party member, he was very vocal about his ambitions to be picked as a candidate for city councillor. In his mind, he wanted to project his own sense of helplessness on the imagined impotence of Norwegian Christian civilization in the face of rampant Islamization. It's a <laughs> bit like how... A bully is usually someone who's being abused and if you're you're in that kind of position, you're then going to try and pick on someone else. So he feels like the world's against him. So he's like, right, who can I be against then? Who can I make sure that I step on instead of being stepped on? Uh, and this wanting to be city councillor for this party. Mm-hmm. He wants to um, be something special. People he wants to be something to special, look at him he- and... And he wants to sort of build an army almost of people that he can get uh, thinking the same way as him. Because that's what Mm -hmm. bullies do. They like to recruit people into their bully fiefdom to then go out en masse and attack an individual. Yeah, because you you can't do that on your own. You need to have people behind you. Yeah, exactly. It's believed that Brevik's association with the Progress Party is where his journey into radicalisation began. As a lonely and tormented individual who had been abused throughout his childhood and consistently jilted by the world as an adult, Brevik made the Muslim population in Norway the primary object of his rage. Over time, his hate rippled out to also include the left-wing politicians who he perceived to be traitors for allowing Muslims to live and flourish in Norway and for forcing multiculturalism on the country. So that's where the hatred of these teenagers who were in that Labour yeah. Party comes from them because these the Labour political parties are the ones that have encouraged people of different faiths to integrate and to live together and he doesn't want that. He doesn't want somebody who's not Christian in his country, is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely yeah. it. So he's going after the, the people that are enabling this, oh, for uh, this multiculturalisation. Multi- multiculturalism. Yeah. <laughs> I've not had a drink, I know what I you mean. <laughs> I know what you mean. It's it's hard to think of the right word, though. I know what you mean. It is. Um, initially, nobody took a whole lot of notice of Brevik. However, as time went on, uh, his dreams of power became increasingly aggressive. He began vocalising his plans to implement the use of guns and explosives to further the group's cause. Even by the popular party's far-right standards, this was just considered to be too extreme, and as such, Brevik was shunned by his fellow group members and asked not to run for office. That must have really been awful for him as well. He finds somebody, like a group of people, that he feels he can start to be a part of a community, and even they don't want him. Yeah, these are allies in his head, and... Yeah, they're not on the same page as him. So he's thinking, I'm on my own. I'm absolutely on my own again. Outside of politics, Brevik's love life was also a lost cause. His general weirdness and complete lack of people skills and social awareness rendered him practically undateable. 
Out of desperation, he summoned a mail-order bride from Belarus and bragged to his friends and family that he'd finally found a girlfriend. However, after a short period of time, his Belarusian partner decided she couldn't stomach living with Brevik, and she swiftly left him and made her way back home, which I think was a very lucky escape for her. I agree. And it, it goes to show even somebody who's in it for money can't bear to be around him, that that's mm. how awful he is. Yeah. Some people who knew Brevik were convinced that he was actually secretly gay. He denied this fiercely and bragged that he was quite the ladies' man, even though he was rarely ever seen in the company of anyone, let alone a woman. Now that power, love, money and glory had eluded him in real life, Brevik found temporary solace in virtual reality. Locked up in his room for days and nights at a time, he became a warrior in a computer game called World of Warcraft. He called himself Anders Nordic. In this virtual world, he immersed himself in an online fantasy world in which he was a fearless and respected knight who had a big, muscular body and dressed in spectacular armour with precious stones sewn onto his chest. But even in this make-believe place of brave warriors and cataclysmic wars, Brevik remained an outsider, even amongst his fellow social outcasts. He lacked the social awareness to simply play the game and keep his mouth shut, so he would drone on endlessly to his fellow players, preaching his anti-Islamic nonsense while showcasing his violent ambition to wage war on the perceived enemies of Christian Norway. His online peers in the gaming sphere found his delusions ridiculous and they refused to accept him as a worthy player, so once again Brevik found himself isolated and alone. Full of anger, resentment, bitterness and burning hatred, he began making deadly plans of his own now. In his mind he wanted his opportunity to save the country that he loved and to create a legacy that would echo through the ages. It was essentially a suicide mission in which he would be forever remembered as a martyr and a hero. Thus, with nobody to keep an eye on him, Anders Brevik intricately plotted one of the most heinous and devastating terrorist attacks that Norway has ever seen. I do keep just thinking back to this awful life that this baby had, this toddler, this child, and how he was just absolutely doomed from the get-go he was brought up by a mother who would say the most vile things that somebody could ever say to another human being let alone their own child and never given the opportunity to develop those social skills perhaps there's that there is nature and nurture in this it's maybe Hmm. there was something already that was going to cause this maybe there wasn't and it was just this upbringing But I feel so, so sorry for him because he really wants to be a part of something that he feels is worthwhile. But he's just looking in completely the wrong place and is is just the wrong person. He's never going to be accepted. He's never going to be socially loved and thought of as a friend or a partner. And that just, it does make me feel so, so sad. It, it doesn't it, it doesn't kind of justify anything, but it, it does kind of explain quite a lot for me. Mm. And I didn't know this much about his background. I it's really so didn't. It's so interesting. I yeah, just it's... thought he was anti-Muslim and quite political. I didn't realise all of what he'd actually dealt with from such an early age. And And where would this have ended if it hadn't ended in this way and with him taking this particular path of this you know, anti-Muslim stance. It was never going to end well, was it? I just no, because he probably I, would have stalked women and killed women that turned him down and rejected yeah. him. There'd have been some, some way been that something he'd have been awful. Yeah. brutal and violent, absolutely. Yeah, he was born, I think, this, you know, Satan and the upbringing that he then endured just fed into that. So I do, I agree with you. I think it's partly nurture and partly nature. And I definitely think that it was never going to end well. And it could have ended in lots of different ways. Yeah, this could have been a a serial killer that we, you know, we could have been talking about him in that sense. But it just so happens that it was this path that he took. The criminal trial of Brevik began on the 16th of April in 2012 in Oslo Courthouse under the jurisdiction of Oslo District Court. 
Brevik entered the courthouse flanked by several police officers who escorted him to his seat. Before sitting down, however, he faced the cameras, stood up straight, put his feet together and with a slight smirk, performed a Saig Heil-style Nazi salute. This sickening and defiant gesture was met with gasps of disbelief from the court attendees and the judge had to order everyone to calm down and let it go so that the proceedings could finally commence. And Brevik would go on to repeat this vile gesture each time he entered or exited the courtroom throughout his entire two-month-long trial, reiterating to the world daily just how despicable and evil he truly was. And a lot of us will have seen the footage of this because lots mm-hmm. of the trial was televised. And yeah. I remember seeing that. And it's truly shocking in such a formal setting. And he was immaculately dressed. Um, such a formal setting. And to see him behaving so stupidly, really, it was, you know, it's awful what he's doing. The symbolism of that is horrific, of course. But also it just looks really silly and it's just weird to see. And you just don't expect it. And then, so it is a shock as well. It's such a shocking thing to see. Mm. It's a shocking kind of, he knew exactly what he was doing there. He oh, knew yeah. that he was just out to get attention, to cause people to, to like you said, to gasp at him and to, to be outraged because that got him attention. Yeah, that courtroom was his theatre. This was an opportunity for him to, in his eyes, get that message out there on a, an international scale now. When offered the opportunity to speak, Brevik upheld his defiant arrogance by declaring that he did not recognise the legitimacy of the court because it derived its authority from parties supporting multiculturalism and he accused the judge of being corrupt. The charges were read out to Brevik by the prosecution, which included the indictments of terrorism and premeditated murder. Descriptions were provided of how each victim was killed. When asked to plead after hearing the charges, Brevik responded that even though he had been the one to commit the offences, he was not guilty, reasoning that he was acting out of necessity and in defence of Norway. He then demanded that the court drop all charges against him, acknowledge his heroism and bravery, and release him. No questions asked. Oh, I mean, it's almost deluded. He's just hell? utterly deluded. Ridiculous. The absurd request was, of course, refused by the judge. Before starting his testimony, Brevik asked that he be allowed to begin by reading a statement that he had prepared during his time on remand. Despite the prosecution expressing their concerns that Brevik was using the courtroom as a platform to voice his extremist ideology, the judge did grant that request. As expected, the speech turned out to be nothing more than a collation of Brevik's confused, contradictory and hate-fuelled political ramblings. He often spoke with the collective we in reference to his supposed association with other individuals sharing his ideology. The speech was a weak, absurd and cringeworthy effort to justify the massacre. Brevik focused on his supposed fight against multiculturalism and compared it with the struggle of Tibet for independence from China. He claimed that he acted out of a desire to fight communism and to defend Christian Norway and Europe against Muslims and multiculturalists. He maintained that he wasn't insane and that he was acting out of goodness and that he was part of an organisation called Knights Templar. At no point did he acknowledge any kind of immorality in his actions or show any remorse for what he'd done. Instead, he proudly concluded his speech by insisting that he would, without hesitation, repeat the attacks all over again, given the chance. Oh yeah, because that's really what you should be saying. That's going to work. In court. In court, yeah. At least yeah. if you can plead guilty and show some sort of, like, that you're sorry in some way, shape or form, or you've got potentially a good defence as to why you did something maybe you'd get a lesser sentence but instead you're standing there saying yeah did it do it all again brilliant closing arguments were held on the 22nd of june and on the 24th of august in 2012 a criminal psychologist ruled that brevik was sane at the time that the crimes were committed and on that day the 24th of august 2012 anders brevik was found guilty of all charges and this is a crazy bit and i remember this he was sentenced to 21 years in prison with a minimum non-parole period of 10 years and that was a maximum penalty possible under Norwegian law. So 21 years in prison can apply for parole after 10 years. For killing 77 yes. people. 
it's just that is bonkers. Ap- I was about to say the bonkers. Like that is that is ridiculous. What I will say is that he um so they don't have things like whole life tariffs in Norway, but his sentence does allow the court to continue his incarceration indefinitely five years at a time for as long as the prosecuting authority deems him to be a threat to society. So Oh, so he will be in jail for the rest of his well, life. Yes and no. Yeah, but I, I think if, in some weird way, if he's able to pr- prove that he is completely rehabilitated and no longer a threat, then there's a potential that he could be released. And that's just, I can't that's get my head around terrifying, it. terrifying, isn't it? Really terrifying. However, I don't feel like with the sort of social skills he has and the sort of person he is that he would be able to fake it. So I do yeah. think that if he genuinely is rehabilitated and is brought round to a much more sane and normal way of thinking, that actually he genuinely would have. I I can't see that he would be able to hide his true emotions and feelings and beliefs in a way that would get past a parole board. Mm. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. So Brevik chose not to appeal the sentence, um, which isn't that surprising given that it's so lenient. And on the 8th of September, the Norwegian media Well, you say it's so lenient, but it was the maximum that and that, well, the Norwegian yeah, yeah. courts could... True. So in their culture, yeah. In, their in that court, it was the most severe. But yeah, yeah I mean, he's not going to be able to really appeal it, is he? He stood there and well, said he'd no. do it all again if he could. In his closing remarks, a judge said... Many people share Brevik's conspiracy theory. The court finds that very few people, however, share Brevik's idea that the alleged Islamization should be fought with terror. And I thought that was a really interesting remark yeah. to make. You know, but but worrying that the judge is saying, you know, yeah, there's loads of people out there that think this. I mean, I suppose there are, but do we really want to hear that in this situation? And you know, but it's okay were, for them though. to think that. He joined that. that political group, and there were people who felt the same. But as soon as he started talking about guns and blowing people up and mm. putting bombs in cars, they then turfed him out of the political organisation. So it's not, it's not something that people were blind to. There's mm, that political just, party all felt the same as him. It just didn't sit nicely with me. Um, I don't know, I just kind of felt that that was the judge saying it's okay to think this as long as you don't act upon it using violent measures. But then, even if that's not something that you or I agree with, you can't tell people not to believe something. And actually, if people are going to, at least to say, don't deal with it in this manner, but deal with it, you know, campaign or or try and bring your point of view across in a better way... Hmm. I don't know. I I kind of get it. I disagree yeah, with you on I mean, that a little bit because I do get awful, it. It's a fact. Awful, there's an awful analogy that I'm kind of thinking, which is technically it's it's not illegal to be a paedophile, is it? But it's illegal to act upon those depraved urges. So yes, because you can't stop someone for their thoughts. Exactly. You so can't, yeah. you know, seeking out you know that vile material online mm-hmm. or abusing children is illegal, but actually yes. being a paedophile isn't and it's maybe the judge is kind of saying look you can think what you want you can have those ideals but as long as you don't kind of do anything to enact a world in which you know you get to have your say and nobody can embrace multiculturalism that's okay so Mm. yeah I kind of get it but you know it's a really fucked up analogy so I'm sorry for that but no but I do understand your analogy and I I get it I think it's a really hard thing to hear as well that the judges said that it really is yeah but it is it is a fact there are plenty of people in the country at that moment in time who did agree with him who did feel the same way but none of them took guns onto a small island mm. and shot a load of teenagers yeah he didn't have like, to do what this the, hell? Yeah. the aftermath of the attacks was marked by profound shock grief and a collective sense of loss the nation mourned the tragic deaths of 77 people and grappled with the physical and emotional scars left by the bombing in oslo and the mass shooting on utoya island the aftermath also witnessed a surge in national unity with an emphasis on values such as tolerance inclusivity and democracy so it's actually done the opposite of what he wanted to achieve which is quite often the case yeah fuck you anders brevik absolutely 
The incident prompted a reflection on security measures, anti-terrorism protocols and the rise of far-right extremism in Europe too. The survivors, families of the victims and the Norwegian public collectively continued to heal and rebuild, emphasising resilience and a commitment to the values that stood in stark contrast to the extremist ideology behind these attacks. So I think that's the only... I feel like I've slurred my words throughout this entire episode and I promise I've not had a drink. Um, But that's the... um, only kind of positive really in this isn't it that we saw it with the Manchester Arena bombing you know this this hateful act that then prompts so much goodwill amongst the community to bind together and support each other and it's it flies in the face of what that extremist set out to do and it just shows that you will not win. I like that that is a good way to end on we will end it there. Mm. So we will be back on the 3rd of January for the beginning of the second half of season 10. That was even more convoluted than how I said it. It was. <laughs> Have a fantastic Christmas and a happy new yeah, year. Yeah, Merry Christmas everybody if you celebrate and happy new year. And We'll oh, see you on socials in the meantime. We will. Of course we will. And Merry Christmas, Mark. And even though you, I'll definitely Beth. speak to you before. <laughs> we definitely will. Actually, we're speaking oh, to each other tomorrow Mark, evening. Oh, fuck you. Fuck off, Mark. We are speaking to each other tomorrow night, Beth, to do our Crime Wave yes. Q&A. Yes, I've had a little little sneaky peek at some of the questions. I haven't looked at all of them, but I have a little peek mm. and I'm excited. I think it'll be a really interesting discussion, little conversation. No questions off limits, yeah. Oh, I don't think we should say wow. that. It's too late You know now. what our listeners are like. <laughs> I know, yeah. I know, I'm worried. Okay, well, yeah, we will um, see you on the other side. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.